Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are semantic threat researchers Gavin O'Gorman and Bridget O'Gorman. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing the old and the new, the old being two very old school types of attacks that are in the news again, namely romance scams and uh, distributed denial service attacks. But first we're going to turn to the new, which of course is the attack that has dominated the security headlines since its discovery in mid-December. And that of course is SolarWinds. It's been six weeks now since uh, news of the attacks broke and hardly a day has gone by without some new information emerging about the attacks. So for example, at the beginning of this week, the uh, newly inaugurated US President Joe Biden ordered a full-scale review of SolarWinds. Uh, he tasked the uh, US intelligence community with reviewing the attacks uh, alongside other areas of concern regarding Russia such as uh, the poisoning of opposition leader Alex Alexei Navalny and alleged offering of bounties on US soldiers in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, uh, the Russian government has itself warned uh, organizations in its country about possible retaliatory cyber attacks. Um, an alert from NKT, SKI, which is Russia's coordination center for computer, computer incidents, said that uh, in the face of uh, accusations of Russian involvement in uh, attacks, in, in the solar winds attacks, uh, that they feared that there would be retaliatory attacks on critical infrastructure facilities in the Russian Federation. Uh, is that going to happen? Well, uh, in a press conference this week, um, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki said uh, that it could be a possibility. She said, we reserve the right to respond at a time and manner of our choosing to any cyber attacks. So not saying they're going to retaliate, but not ruining it out either. Um, now, meanwhile, we've had a lot going on ourselves with regards to solar winds. Um, we've had an ongoing investigation and we've published a series of blogs detailing our findings. Uh, we did a three-part series of blogs about the whole command and control process used by Sunburst, which is the original malware delivered by the Trojanized SolarWinds Orion update. Um, that's the malware that it was essentially the starting point of the attacks. But I guess the most significant piece of research we published is on a new, previously undisclosed tool that was used in the attacks, and we've named that Raindrop. And I've got um, Gavin here to talk about it. He's going to be Mr. Raindrop today because uh, he heads up one of the teams that were involved investigating it. So Gavin, I guess, first of all, maybe you could explain to listeners what Raindrop drop is yeah sure and thanks for the mr raindrop description there dick appreciate that <laughs> uh so yeah so basically i guess as you you know you described already that there's the initial backdoor and there's the sunburst backdoor which is the uh, the trojanized element of the orion uh, software and when that's run typically what what most people have documented seeing is a second stage backdoor called teardrop and that's quite a simple bit of code, which effectively loads an instance of Cobalt Strike uh, and then executes that. And then, of course, that gives the attacker, you know, full control over the compromised machine. Uh, and during our investigation, we saw just the same. We saw teardrop being deployed on a number of uh, victim machines. And generally, it was actually fairly straightforward to find teardrop because you can actually see it being created by the Orion executable directly. So our, our telemetry would log that and we could search for that. Uh, and one of the interesting things about Teardrop is the way it's run. The attackers 
essentially tried to make it look like a legitimate uh, DLL and or a legitimate library code, basically. And to do that, they copied uh, library function names from legitimate files. Uh, so basically, there's a, a legitimate uh, DLL called or application called TCL TK, which is a graphical user interface library. And so they took names from that and embedded that into their uh, DLL, basically, so that anybody looking at it might think, okay, this is genuine, looks like a, a legitimate library without probing too deeply into it. And so what we did was we then we took all of those those legitimate library names and looked for any times we saw those being executed on our customer base and looked for suspicious instances of that. Uh, and we found a number. We found uh, at least four or five cases where we saw uh, a DLL file being run with these, you know, what appeared to be legitimate uh, names, but in fact was not this legitimate library, which the names have been taken from. And when we looked into those more, initially we thought that this was just another teardrop uh, sample. Mm -hmm. uh, but when the, the reverse engineers on the team looked into it, they said, actually, no, this is this is functionally the same as Teardrop in that it goes and it loads a copy of Cobalt Strike and so on. But the implementation is substantially different. And what I guess is interesting about that is why, why would the attackers have gone off and developed this uh, modified version or not quite even a modified version of Teardrop, completely different from Teardrop, but then actually performs the same function uh, as Teardrop. Um, yeah, because um, yeah, I mean, when I was heard about it first, uh, when it was described to me that way, you know, I was thinking well, it sounds very similar. You know, it loads Cobalt Strike and what have you. Um, and I was going, why? Why are there two distinct tools? Yeah, so of course, yeah, that's the question we were thinking about as well. And a couple of theories, I suppose. The uh, the, the main theory is that it's always good to have redundant tools. So that if one tool is found, you've got your backup access in the form of another tool, essentially. Uh, and I think that's probably the theory we think is is, is pretty reasonable. Um, what was interesting, I suppose, also about the raindrop, which was this second tool that we identified, what we called it, is that, you know, I mentioned that we could find teardrop pretty easily because it was being dropped directly from this the, the Orion executable. But when we found uh, raindrop, there was no instance where it had been dropped by the Orion uh, executable. So basically, it had appeared on victim machines without being installed by SolarWinds. So that meant the attackers had some other way to spread onto those machines and then install uh, Raindrop. And so that is something also we were kind of thinking about is, is it a case that Raindrop is being used to spread around uh, within the network? Uh, and then one of the Cobalt Strike payloads within Raindrop, while most of them are configured to connect directly out to the internet and just connect to a, a HTTP a command and control server, one of them was configured to connect to a machine on the local network. And essentially what that means is, or what that, that implies, is that for that backdoor to function and, and for the attackers to send commands to it, it has to connect to another machine on the network where presumably another backdoor is running, another version of Cobalt Strike is running, and then that machine has direct access to the internet. So basically, the attackers have had to uh, proxy their internet connection around on a compromised network 
presumably that one of the machines they were interested in did not have internet access. And, and typically the reason for that would be that this machine is perhaps a uh, more secure, higher priority machine. It shouldn't have direct internet access precisely for this type of situation so the attackers can't get access to it. But by utilizing this uh, networked version or local network version of Cobalt Strike, they can bypass that uh, restriction. And that kind of leads a little bit into why we think Teardrop is basically used for, or sorry, Raindrop is used for um, spreading around on a network uh, and operating independently of the Orion backdoor, basically. Okay. Um, and it, it does mean that, um, I mean, I know that, that there's uh, a lot of people have been affected by solar winds because of the nature of it, but uh, it does mean that we, we have seen, we found a few more, um, uh, it, it would assist in finding maybe some more victims of the second stage attacks that we, where we have another tool that can point to that, you know, because I think like, um, like teardrop, raindrop is only, you know, appears on networks that the attackers are genuinely interested in. Yeah, and I think that was, certainly that was the case for us, where we did find an additional victim where we had not seen the uh, teardrop uh, backdoor, but we saw raindrop. And so I, that's, that's always the way, I think, with these types of attacks where, you know, as different companies and different security vendors and so on are investigating, they start finding a little bit more, more clues, more links and so on. And then you, you gradually expand it out uh, to find more victims. And that's why it's always good to try and uh, publish these things and talk about them. Because, like I said, there was one victim where we hadn't seen Teardrop at all. So otherwise, we wouldn't have identified that. And by publishing these details, uh, hopefully other uh, companies and other vendors and so on are able to discover if, if they've seen the same tools uh, on their own network. Mm -hmm. Um. I guess, uh, you know, the solar winds investigation um, by everybody has been going on for about six weeks uh, or maybe a little bit more now. Um, do you think like that this is the last piece of the jigsaw or there could potentially be more um, findings in the, in the pipeline? I think there's probably quite a bit of interesting things that, that could still appear. Uh, for example, the original compromise of solar winds themselves. Uh, there has been some uh, information released, obviously by um, CrowdStrike are, are working uh, with solar winds and have published some information. So I think there's more to be seen from that. Uh, as far as I'm aware, we don't know exactly how solar winds was compromised. So that means there's obviously some other vector that the attackers are using. They've used it against solar winds you know, very likely they're using it against other targets as well. So that'll be interesting to see. And and then, of course, there's the big question about, you know, who are these guys? Uh, who are they working on behalf of? The, the, the U.S. government, or at least it seems that there is some implications from U.S. governments that this is, is Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, no evidence that I'm aware of has been provided to, uh, you know, verify that connection. No independent security company has come out with any evidence to link this activity, you know, definitively to a particular actor or uh, actor set. Uh, so that I think is the big is the big remaining question. You know, who is it, and more importantly, who has the evidence to say uh, who it is? 
Uh, and it's possible that I think there is, you know, older attacks that might be of interest. So, for example, you know, we've seen all this activity now in 2020. And I think what tends to happen, of course, is as attackers evolve over time, they become better and better and they improve their operational security. And so sometimes to actually figure out maybe who they are or link it to other activity, you have to go back in time. You have to go back to their earlier attacks and go, right, this is possibly the time when they made some mistakes. Maybe they didn't register a command and control domain using their full you know, set of anonymity or whatever protocols they might use for doing that. And so maybe there's a, a weakness there. And I think that is something that, that we're looking at, and I'm sure a, a number of other vendors are looking at as well, is what things have these guys done in the past not related to SolarWinds? And so does that give us any more information about potentially who they are and, and what their uh, end goals are? Yeah, I mean, they certainly don't seem to want to be found. I mean, there are occasions in the past where you, you kind of see attackers where they don't really seem to care if they're discovered or not. You know, they use malware that everybody knows about and they'd almost leave a calling card. But this is a completely new, hitherto unseen tool set that we've seen kind of end to end in these attacks almost, you know. Yeah, and the way, like the, the way they work is, it's meticulous. I mean, uh, you know, they set up a distinct command and control server per victim. Uh, they, you know, have a co completely uniquely configured instance of COBOL. That takes quite a bit of effort. That takes quite a bit of work to do that. Uh, and quite a number of people involved in it. And to do that, you know, consistently across every single victim, you know, the nature of people is people are, you know, they get a bit lazy, they get a bit sloppy. You're like, ah, I'm just going to reuse this on this particular victim. Uh, it'll be okay. We'll get away with it. Uh, whereas that's, you don't see that with these guys. They are very disciplined. Uh, and absolutely, they've managed to, you know, maintain, you know, they were on, what, did SolarWinds come out and said around 18,000 computers or something like that. The first stage backdoor uh, was on. It's quite a quite a large number of machines, and for them to have gone undetected for what, at least five or six months is is pretty impressive. Like that is you know an awful lot of attention to detail, making sure that all their tracks are covered at each step along the way, and that is pretty unusual that type of capability. All right, so mm -hmm. so yeah, they are they're, they're an impressive uh, and very technically capable and disciplined set of attackers. Yeah, there's one um, detail in the raindrop log that we didn't really expand on uh, when we were drafting it. But then I was talking to our colleague Eric Chen um, earlier on this week um, and he was telling me more about it. And we actually we did a series of tweets on it yesterday because I thought it was quite interesting. And that's the credential dumper tool that the attackers were using. Um, which in, in the blog we described to as similar to, but not the same as an open source tool known as Solar Flare. But then, um, you know, when I saw that, I was like, okay, yeah, custom credential dumper tool. But then Eric was explaining it to me. Um, he was saying the nature of Solar Winds is that, or Solar Winds Orion is that it, it's used for monitoring lots of different systems. So because of that, it has credentials for lots of different things on it. And, um, you know, if you're able to steal those credentials, even after the attack is cleaned up, you potentially have some sort of access back into the victim's network. And uh, he thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's another good example of how much research these guys have done. 
Uh, you know, once they got into Solar Winds, they must have spent quite a bit of time. Uh, and in fact, I think the timeline does go back to uh, like late uh, 2019 was when that initial uh, compromise appeared to happen. And they started doing some testing and they had to figure out, you know, they had to figure out the entire Solar Winds build system and everything like that. Uh, so while they were doing that research, obviously, then they were able to, to learn about other tools and how the exact how exactly solar wind software worked and then goes to the extent of basically looking at right how could we extract the passwords that the tools use and then of course that's another avenue for uh, maintaining access so you know they made good use i think of their access uh, in solar winds basically to 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 plummet for everything they could mm -hmm. uh, so yeah quite quite efficient and quite smart work all right okay thanks gavin uh, let's turn to you, Bridget, because um, you've got uh, an interesting story about romance scammers who have been around since the year dot, but they still seem to be catching victims. Yeah, it's 2021 and uh, people are still falling victim to romance scammers. Like, as you said, Dick, like romance scams have been around almost as long as the internet at this stage in kind of many different iterations, I suppose. Probably like the Nigerian prince email scammers, you know, that a lot of people would know about to people getting scammed by fake Facebook profiles and things like that. Um, but it seems that the pandemic has just provided a new opportunity now for these types of scammers. So Interpol issued a warning there, I think last week, saying that the increasing use of dating apps, apparently during the pandemic, has made uh, lovelorn individuals even more susceptible to falling for scammers posing as potential love interests. And I suppose it is understandable. I mean, opportunities to meet people in real life don't really exist for people in many countries now due to lockdowns and due to places like bars and restaurants being closed. So the dating apps have kind of surged uh, in popularity in the last few months, probably isn't too surprising. So Interpol has issued this purple notice to its 194 member countries, warning them that Criminals' new modus operandi and dating apps takes advantage of people's vulnerabilities as they look for potential matches and then lures them into a quite sophisticated fraud scheme. Okay, I'm not sure where purple falls in on the TLP protocol, yeah. but <laughs> we'll have to research it after we finish recording. Um, so tell us how this scheme works. Yeah, so it's kind of a classic scheme. So victims match with a potential scammer on you know, their dating app of choice, like Tinder or Bumble or Match or whatever. And once a level of trust has been established, the scammers then basically turn the conversation, of course, to discussion of money, and they try to encourage their match to join them in an investment. So the scammer, you know, they do take pains to make things look legitimate. They provide screenshots, they provide domain names that look almost identical to legitimate websites, and then they even put their victims in contact with what they call customer service agents um, over the phone, I think, to help them pick the right investments. So it is quite an elaborate, well-organized scam that clearly, you know, has um, quite a few people involved in it. And then victims are told things like they can work their way up the investment chain to VIP status and make money that way, etc. So very much the kind of language, you know, you would have heard used around things like pyramid schemes as well in the past. However, of course, once the victim then has been cleared out of all of their available cash, uh, they are locked out of their investment account and their so-called love interest disappears, um, essentially ghosts them, but rather than just leaving them with a broken heart or a bruised ego, um, they leave them a lot poorer, and of course worrying that they might never see the money that they invested again. 
And I suppose the advice around romance scams, I mean, it hasn't really changed. Basically, don't send money to people you've never met, you know, no matter what kind of line that they spin you. Um, however, I suppose the opportunities for these kind of scammers, they have increased, I guess, um, in the pandemic because I suppose people claiming they can't travel or they can't meet you, I guess, is more believable at the moment because most of us can't travel or even see people we know. So I guess people who are on dating apps at the moment just need to be extra vigilant when it comes to who they are talking to and the kind of information they're giving out to people. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about dating apps there. It just reminded me of, um, I thought it was one of the more interesting stories coming out of the whole um, storming of the US Capitol, which was, uh, and it's not strictly cybersecurity, but it is security related, where people uh, people were posting pictures of themselves in the Capitol on their Tinder or Bumble profiles. And then um, there was, um, it was mostly women, I gathered, they were matching with them on tinder and then reporting them to the fbi yeah they were basically like honey trapping these people yeah, involved yeah. in the capital riots because yeah mm -hmm. i think some one of the individuals involved in the riots um had said he's he'd like surged in popularity on tinder or bumble since he put up pictures of him at the riots but then that's right, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was on Bloomberg I read that story. He said his Bumble profile had, quote, blown up after yeah. he posted pictures of him storming the Capitol. Um, oh, so yeah. that probably blew up in him. <laughs> anyway, uh, your next story that is also a bit of a blast from the past, isn't it? Yeah, and I think really this story and the last story about the romance scammers, they just sort of show us that no cyber crime kind of trend ever really goes away you know they always have the potential to kind of re-emerge and a report this week from um security firm radware has said that they've noticed a re-emergence recently of cyber criminals threatening to hit businesses with um distributed denial of service ddos attacks um unless they pay a ransom and we used to see these kind of attacks a good bit a couple of years ago i definitely remember um writing about them a few times but they probably did sort of go out of fashion there in the last while but Rabbi reported that it saw a new wave of these kind of DDoS extortion emails being sent to customers during the last week of 2020 and also during the first week of 2021. And the emails were threatening companies with DDoS attacks unless they paid a fairly significant ransom of between 5 and 10 bitcoins, which translates at the minute to around 150000 to around $300,000, $250,000, uh, $100,000, obviously. And the company also said that these threats are not empty as some victims have um, been subjected to these details attacks when they refuse to pay. Some of them have lasted as long as nine hours and they've ranged around 200 gigabits per second um, when they refuse to pay this ransom. And it seems likely that a surge in the price of Bitcoin has led to this resurgence of these types of scams. And um, there's been lots of talk online about this recently about Bitcoin surging in price and it's now worth around um, 25,000 US dollars for one Bitcoin with one Bitcoin. Um, so it is at really high level at the minute, uh, the kind of prices, you know, we haven't seen in a long time, I would say. And I suppose this may also lead to a resurgence in cryptocurrency mining too. Um, coin mining was hugely popular um, a couple of years ago when cryptocurrency values were um, at a very high level then as well. So it seems obvious that we could see a resurgence in it now as well, as it's when I suppose coins are worth a lot of money that it's worth cyber criminals while to take part in coin mining so i would say that is something that um, people and businesses should also be on the lookout for at the moment as well
Yeah, definitely. I remember like the few times we did um, research on that and it was remarkable how uh, the amount of um, coin mining attacks seemed to kind of track directly to the value of, of Bitcoin, yeah. particularly Monero as well. Um, it, it was funny. All right. And then once they, they dropped off, well, they're obviously, uh, well, Bitcoin is, is, is massively up and now again at the moment, but once they dropped off, activity fell off a cliff almost. Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, that's about all we have time for this week. But if you've been enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all of our future episodes. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, uh, including that blog on Raindrop, which we were discussing earlier, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic-enterprise-blogs.security.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence um that's we'll quite the mouthful again. there <laughs> it certainly is i'm glad i got it out <laughs> before you started laughing uh, we'll be back again again in um a fortnight's time but until then thank you for listening and goodbye